You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. Welcome to the world of Tony Ho from CBC Podcasts. It's an award-winning, bite-sized narrative comedy series about human relationships. Familiar, hilarious, and sometimes unnerving. The troupe features Miguel Rivas, Adam Niebergall, and alumnus of the Second City Mainstage, Roger Bainbridge. They will take you on a darkly comedic ride that finds honesty in every situation. You can listen and subscribe to Tony Ho on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I nerded out in this conversation with Don Weissenen. He's a professor of communication at the Marx School of Public and International Affairs at Baruch College. And he's got a new book called Improv for Democracy. This is a tremendously powerful book that really bridges all the things we've talked about in this podcast since we began doing this. So it's the connection between academia and improv and life and democracy, all, all this stuff. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. John Weissenden, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Excited to be here. Uh, I didn't know what to ex- expect when I started reading your book, Improv for Democracy. But I was really blown away by how you were able to connect the dots on this work in such a vast and eclectic array of thinkers. Uh, this is a book that connects improvisation with folks such as Thorstein Veblen, Peter Drucker, Ronald Heifetz, Albert Einstein, Neil Postman, and so many more. And I'm wondering, as an academic, are you actually getting buy-in or skepticism from your colleagues at these connections? Actually, a lot of buy-in because it so fits with a lot of currents that have been flowing in academia for so long, right? Just the idea of learning should be active is really big, right? There's over a thousand studies now saying, please, please switch from passive to active forms of learning, whatever you do. Learning is more than just what takes place with the head. The body is involved, right? We know this. People learn best by experience. Uh, I love the work of Lev Vygotsky, too, who had a whole, in psychology, had a whole thing about, you know, toddlers. Toddlers, the way they learn to walk is not through somebody getting up and putting up a bullet point filled PowerPoint and having them take a test on walking. (laughs) It's like, walk, you know, 
make mistakes and then keep performing his phrase was a head taller than yourself. And that's what I feel like improv improvised approaches to ed- education do. Yeah. I mean, 10 years ago, I don't think we are getting the kind of buy-in that we're getting now. Um, and we're yeah. doing stuff at Harvard and Stanford and university of Chicago. Yeah. And, Yale. and I just, I feel like a decade ago uh, th- there was a lot of skepticism, at least that we were seeing, but yep. I guess, I guess the recent literature all points to it. And a lot of it, that a lot of these books, the business books that come out, the popular ones talk about improvisation. And, and that, that's exactly it. I think that, what needed to happen was to make these connections for folks to say, hey, mindfulness is really big in psychology, whole part of the field there. Let's connect improv to that, right? Clear connections. Um, one of the things I'm doing with this book, uh, chapter four, is all about applied improv and adaptive leadership, which came out of Harvard University. 30 years of you know, theory and practice and adaptive leadership. And I went, wait, hate him. wait a minute. This, these two things go together perfectly. Applied improv is a means of training for adaptive leadership. And, and when I read in Sharon Delos Park's book that the way they were teaching classes in leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government was to start a class with someone coming up front and singing a song, they would say, okay, here's your first assignment, come up, sing a song for the class. And then, you know, everybody's shifting in their seats going, what are we doing here? This is the wrong class. I didn't sign up for this. Right. And they said, everything we need to teach you about leadership uh, is going to happen through, through this song. We're going to, we're going to break down your default settings, why you had certain tendencies and impulses, why you resisted doing that performance, right? All those things you're going to be expected to do in leadership. Uh, you're going to be tested in many different ways to work beyond your current capacity. So um, that was really big. But um, I'll add one more thing, uh, Kelly. I think that I think that we also need to evolve the vocabulary of improv and applied improvisation. I think one of the things that applied improv brings to improv into the world writ large is uh, the potential for a larger vocabulary of practices. And that's what I was trying to build out with this book was we know, we know yes. And, and it's foundational, love it. What else is there? What, yeah. what concepts from applied improv could affect our political world, right? Uh, the way that we approach other people in, in the public arena, boy, does that need help? Right. Yeah, I agree a, a thousand percent. I mean, we we have we have the tendency to become uh, almost too niche and and too insular when when our work is. This is a great thing about improvisation. I, I often say to people, you know, why, why would you need improvisation? I'm, and I'm, I basically say, does the success of your endeavor involve human beings working well with other human beings? And if, if the answer is yes, then improvisation is something you that would be very helpful to you. That that's exactly it. And I think showing people that it's a skill to be practiced. It's a major transformation. It's part of that buy-in that has started to happen. Uh, I, I constantly go back to Bernard and Short's definition of improv, you know, because you go into a room and I have an executive MBA class at City University of New York. I walk in the whole first two weeks, I find I'm, I'm just overcoming assumptions about what this is. Oh, it's about being funny. I'm performing a comedian, right? But look, if that happens and you end up having a career uh, on the stage, you're great. And if laughter is a byproduct of this stuff, even better. We love that. But it's actually not central to what we're doing here. What's central is it's not winging it. As Bernard and Short say, it's a highly refined system of observing, connecting, and responding with other people. And I can't, I was like, you know, don't call that a soft skill, folks. That's at the center of every organization. There's there's a lot of literature that talks about people don't leave organizations, they leave people, people right? Yep. Just if we want to talk basic kind of uh, key performance indicators that matter to organizations like that, turnover, 
right? So establishing positive communication climates, yes, and cultures, this is incredibly important to everyone's work. There, there's a, a really elegant um, description. I, I, and, and when I take, do my notes, I, I sort of think in terms of uh, themes I'm picking up in the book. My, my first sort of set was why, you know, why, why this book? And, and actually, I posted this on LinkedIn. Uh, you say in the book, quote, our lives mostly hang on the quality of what we say and how we interact with one another day by day and moment by moment. We spend our lives affecting one another for better or worse in every encounter. So that's the ultimate zoom out of what is happening as human beings in, in these endeavors of living our lives. And rec- right there, you're like, oh, okay, if, we, if we're going to pay attention to that, that, we need to practice what those day-to-day moments, interactions, um, uh, are, are gonna, are, what's going to happen in those. And, and, and there really isn't a lot of, of practice that one gets in you know, I often talk a bit about improv being noisy group mindfulness because we're living mm-hmm. among noise. And yeah. so, you know, centering yourself and yoga is great and all those things, but that that is not how we are living our day-to-day lives. That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's not having these preset templates in your head that you're smashing onto experience constantly. As much as possible, you're trying to hold those at bay and and honestly take in what's happening in a situation, right? And that that recognition of what happens in conversations for me was a transformation in my career. I, I had started in international affairs and politics, and I'd always thought, oh, policies and these big things, that's how change happens in the world. And I think they do happen that way. But those policies and you know major events in international relations ultimately are the results of human conversations. Um, so I tell my students even, let's get to the level of like, what did two people say to each other? How did it go? Let's examine that, right? Um, the forms of communication at play are, are what invent the futures that we live into. And, and I found really compelling lately, uh, looking at a lot of literature on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I think most people know now the concept of microaggressions, which also tries to bring this to the level of everyday life, right? What happens non-verbally between people, different cultural backgrounds, subcultural backgrounds. Um, I I came across this term recently. It hadn't been on my radar, but micro-invalidations, which is Mm. invalidating others' experiences in everyday encounters. And that just hit me. I went, Wow, that so connects with improv, right? Um, the denial of offers from other people. Uh, someone saying, here was my experience. Here's my story. And too quickly, maybe moving beyond that without building, building something there with another person, uh, right? And again, I'm, I'm in the political world mostly. So the extent to which people just invalidate each other's realities is stunning. And I think that's where improv can really build a lot of connections, both in our organizations and writ large. Well, well, yeah. I mean, this, you know, I give a lot of talks on, on this topic and invariably someone is like, Hey, have you gone to Washington? You know, like, like you should be doing this stuff with politicians, which, which is obviously true uh, yet seemingly impossible. Like, yeah. like I, I, I don't, I don't know how, like, I think years ago, I probably felt like, no, 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 we, we can, we can make this happen. I don't know that we can right now. And Kelly, I, I don't think that's the level of intervention. I've, I've thought of that too. And um, I have a colleague, Mary and Rich and I have been experimenting in this space for the last couple of years, just based off themes from the book. 
Um, we decided let's let's not go to Washington and try to get senators to do improv. Um, where we probably could make a difference is in a local dialogue. So I, I've been holding dialogues in New York City for several years now uh, with a format called a National Issues Forum Guide, where we get people like 10 people of very different political opinions to come together and to discuss contentious political issues. And there's a whole process you lead people through. And the space of dialogue and deliberation often is it's conducted in a very somber tone, right? Okay, I'm going to tell a story. You tell a story. What's your reasoning? We go back and forth. And we just went, I wonder if there's a more joyful way of doing this. So uh, literally a week before the pandemic in New York City, um, we got 10 folks together, uh, everyone from a self-described anarchist and communist to all the way self-described they said, call us this. This is what we want to be known as. We're Trump deplorables. We had them in the same room to talk about um, healthcare, but our little intervention was we had them play improv games with one another before we went into the discussions. Mm-hmm. And then we took breaks and had them play New Choice or Zip Zap Stop, right? And it was just, we've been doing these experiments to play with tone. It seems like t- changing the tone in the scene is one of the most significant contributions. I think applied improv can make to any space a a tone that's normally people have very fixed perspectives and fixed physiology, breaking that up and, and mixing it up into something where they're, you know, laughing a little bit more. And it it was great. It it worked out very well. So we've been, we've been doing this more and more. And we had a participant lately say, when you do these games, when you run us through these exercises, it makes it really hard to hate. And we just thought, Wow, that's our that's our new tagline. Make it hard to hate. I, I can't think of a better contribution for applied improv than that. For sure, because I mean, it, 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 you are almost required by doing the exercises or the games to see the other person as um, multiples, that they are not just mm. one thing. Yeah. Um, and so many of the games, I mean, so the work that we developed at the University of Chicago um, we designed all these orientation programs linking together behavioral science and improvisation. And it, it was, the whole point of it was in the doing, um, uh, uh, seeing each other, um, we play the, the game, I am somebody who, and it's just, it just happens that you're, you're going to see them as more than one thing. And when you do that, they're, they're no longer a blob. Um, and so that, that's, again, like this, you and I are in fierce agreement that this is the work that is so needed, but you're right. I don't think it's going to happen as a giant, you know, global, uh, improv. It's going to be, you know, group by group, um, and, and, and then find a way to cascade. And, and that's, that's the reason that's really the reason I wrote this book improv for democracy was I want to see this embedded and scaled across organizations, across school districts. It's, it's time. There's just, there's too much evidence at this point there, you know, like you're saying with the, you know, the multiple identities that come out of this, that's probably one of the top comments I receive when I do this with team building is folks say, wow, I got to see a different side of Jeff. I got to see a different side of Sarah. I, I never knew that about, right. Well, that's, that's so, so significant. But um, yeah, and I think um, another thing with this is a way to really make the relevance clear is to say, we're playing games in here, but we also play games in everyday life. And to, and yes. to collapse those distinctions as much as possible, say, we're, when we step into a space and we're playing new choice and just breaking off of our patterns, right? That's to say, in everyday life, we make choices, we listen in certain ways that that's a game, or we have certain default settings in meetings that's a game. So it's not that like what we're doing here is something separate 
from what you do in life. We're just having you step into spaces where you can play alternative games that are hopefully more productive for, you know, helping people connect. Well, we, we perform. I mean, there, there, there's the, the, and we talk about wanting peak performers and you go yeah. back to Goffman's work. I mean, he was talking about the, that the theater metaphor is such a useful one because it's why theater was invented as a mirror uh, to look so human beings can understand maybe the deeper things that are going on. So, so you know, the, the, there's so much of that language that historically has, has crossed over. Uh, what I do want you to, specifically, you bookend this, your book, uh, with uh, two stories related to police interventions, yeah. which seems really relevant to the conversation that's happening in the world right now. And, yep. and they're small, but can you speak to both of them? The first one starts in the Netherlands. Yeah, the first one starts in the Netherlands. And I, I wanted to start outside the U.S. context, which um, are, are really loaded right now. And there's a lot to unpack with that, but did want to get back to it. Uh, the one in the Netherlands was pretty remarkable about uh, a group of Dutch Moroccan youth who in the city of Gouda, Gouda, where the cheese comes from, mm-hmm. uh, were really castigated not only by the police, but by people in the local community for what was perceived as, you know, aberrant behaviors. Uh, they were standing on street corners, shouting at police, saying, stop bothering us. And there was just a lot, a lot of shouting, hatred and distrust in the air. And the police hated these kids, these, these young people. And so facilitators came in and you can actually see some of this on YouTube. It's available there now too. They came in and tried to facilitate discussions between the police and young people in the city and really running out of options. They turned to a local improv theater group and said, what you do seems really significant. Could you design an intervention here? Could you do something? They said, yeah, we, we know how to do this well. Um, and so they came in and had the police and young people, for instance, switch roles for a day. So the young people got to dress up in police outfits and go around the city on bikes. And the police got to act, act out the youth on street corners shouting at the police. They turned it into a game. Um, and I, I think the significance is they turned it into the, what was originally being played, like we were saying, was a game itself. But they were like, let's, let's really bring out the game-like qualities of what's being done and show we've got other options here. Um, they were laughing together. They played. Im- they, they were more amenable to playing improv games with each other. The police originally were like, doing improv and games with the young people, that's ridiculous, right? And the young people were like, this won't change anything. They're always going to be this way. And they just gradually loosened and loosened and loosened to the point where now uh, many of these police and young people have great relationships. They know each other by name. And I, you know, do I think improv is going to save the world in that respect? No, but exactly. I mean, you know, big change all at once. No, but at that level of change Mm -hmm. embedded and scaled. Yes. Right. It worked. It worked to break people off of their fixed perspectives and patterns uh, to get them to, to play other games. And in New York, I would, I would first of all, follow the lead of the Irondale theater in Brooklyn, which in the wake of Eric Garner's murder, Right. Um, Called Chief Bratton, then Chief Bratton of New York City Police and said, your police need to learn and listen in the kinds of ways that our actors and improvisers are trained to learn and listen. They they need a whole other way of approaching things. Right. And I, I actually went to a recent seminar with uh, some colleagues that where I was learning about police trainings and so much of it in many places just being taken up with how to use a gun. Right. You know, ninety yeah. percent of training is using a gun. How did it right? And then ten percent on conflict resolution, and maybe right. what zero point one percent on that on on yes anding and learning to listen well and right. 
build on community assets, things like that, the strengths in, of people. So um, th- those are the points where I really see uh, the biggest points of, of intervention is, you know, I, I think we need to bring this to a structural level as well and not just say, hey, individual cop and person, right? I, I think it needs to be part of police trainings as well. And I know there there is some literature with this kind of thing being done. I think improv, improv has a whole role to play in those areas too. Um, I don't want this to come across as kumbaya. I think there is no. systemic racism and structural problems, but you know, this is something we need to throw everything at. And I think that, that this could be one approach that has been proven in several places to work pretty well. I think this is, this is the inter- one of the fascinating things when you, when you dig into the, the literature and there's not, there's not, a ton of great literature on improvisation, you know, uh, but the stuff that is out there is the thorniest, you know, disaster response, uh, that, that, that sort of stuff. And, and, and yeah. it's interesting. We, and we are talking to a major, um, uh, uh, city police force about doing training for 1700 officers, hmm. um, uh, that, that they're, you know, exploring with us right now, which would be, you know, amazing, but the military, we've worked with the military. And, and I think these, the, 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 the tricky subjects, and I want to, I want to talk about this because you've, you've mentioned a lot in the book about the body. And for me, uh, when I was sort of exploring trauma responses um, Mm. and I became acquainted with Bessel van der Kork's work, um, uh, the body keeps score. um, There's a whole section on improvisation in there, in that book, towards the end of the book about, uh, I think his son was involved with, with a program. So talk to us about how, how the body is, is part of this learning tool. Right. Well, we are embodied beings, first of all. And I, I'll tell you, I've come to really hate the word ideology, for one thing, because I think right. it focuses on the head, right? And so much, you know, Ken Robinson had books about this in a, yeah. one of the most biggest TED Talks of all time about this, that we've been far too focused on the head. And not the multiple intelligences, as Gardner says, that human beings have. And so uh, and then Jonathan Haidt, of course, has gone to town with this stuff in recent years, just with politics is deeply physiological. What we believe is deeply, deeply physiological. Often what we see when people say there are these are the facts, we're just seeing gut responses, right? Mm -hmm. Things like that. But we don't. And then Antonio Damasio, really, he had that whole book, Descartes' Error. I think, therefore, I am. He went, no way. I've studied people's brains, people who've had brain impairments and thinking and feeling and the body all go together as one unit. There's no separation between these things for human beings. Hmm. Um, so, I, you know, my thing is that any kind of edge, I'm just, I'm at this place where education and however it's going to happen, whether it's through K through 12 or applied improv trainings has to hit up the cognitive, affective and behavioral elements of how human beings actually make their way through every day. We are all intellectual, we are all emotional, and we are all behavioral. And if we miss any one of those parts, we're missing how human beings actually operate mm-hmm. in, in everyday life. So I think going into the body is, is really critical and having people confront their, and I make this the center of the book, their default settings. I get it from yeah. Heifetz, Grashow, and Linsky, that we all have default settings. We're all tuned in certain ways. Um, is really critical. And when waking people up to, oh, I have more choices, I have more freedoms beyond just my current default settings. I have to say to folks, if, you know, if somebody gets angry at you and you suddenly get angry back, that could be a default setting versus somebody gets angry at you and you go, okay, what are five different options I have here? I wonder what might work best, right? And just 
that those kinds of personal freedoms are they're, they're liberating for people. They, they, they really feel it. Um, I'll say, you know, cr- cross your arms, everybody, everybody cross their arms. Now cross them the other way. Uh, I got this from a friend and they go, Oh no, oh, that feels so weird. I was like, that's it. That's what we're doing here. We're crossing our arms in the other way to go. There's more than one way uh, than just beyond our physiological reactions to do this. So, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, it isn't an intellectual exercise. And I've told this story before, but I mean, I, you, I was working, we were doing our weekly labs at the University of Chicago with the scientists and the, my, my improv team. And um, I, had, I had just come back from there and I was picking up my daughter from school and I, I parked in a weird way and a guy yelled at me. And I literally, because I had been doing this stuff and talking about it, I just did the opposite reaction of like, oh, I'm sorry, I think I screwed up on this. Should, I'll, I'll move on. Totally sorry, you guys. No, have a great day. It was, it was like there, there, this thing was gonna go negative, yep. and it's like completely disrupted it. And then you know you surprise people, and then they have a different reaction. It, it's improvisation is contagious, right? I, I, I think I think it's the number one tool for conflict resolution, yeah. frankly. Yeah. And I, I say, say you know, we're so ready. So many of us, our bodies are set up just to react, react, react so quickly. Um, and it's no fault of our own. Our bodies do that. Like we're, we're, we have these tendencies, but ju- just trying a yes and in conflict resolution, uh, every time I've done it, it's almost always ended well. And and it goes with that thing of like, yes, and isn't necessarily agreement, but it is saying, ha, huh, I affirm where you're coming from. You're really feeling the things that you're feeling. Let me see if I can work with this, right? Yeah. Versus like, you're wrong. Get out of my way. You know, the same old patterns that we've had you know, since the beginning of human history, really, that have regressed us. So you work in academia. I have a, a my wife has recently tenured um, and I do a lot of work in academia. But Congratulations. higher Yay. education is there's a disruption happening right now. And you, you yeah. refer to it in the book. So I'm sort of curious, first of all, you know, what's your view of that disruption? And then where where do you center this conversation around applied improvisation within that? Oh, gosh, I mean, the disruption with tech the past year has just been enormous and right. So there was a lot of resistance and I want to say there, I'll tell you at the end too, there, I I had some resistance to it as well. I had been doing a lot of digital learning education for years, but I think the openness to what it could be has been the remarkable part of learning for me that, you know, I, we've both seen it. There, there's improv shows, even comedians are putting on where they're changing their backgrounds to make it look like a real scene and, you know, things like I'm going, that's amazing. That means that we could probably use this space to, to do more. I think one of the things that most uh, has impacted me this year in this disruptive space has been accessibility, just yeah. realizing how accessible you, you may, you may not love zoom. You may not love VR, whatever it is, right. But what's undeniable in this reality is more people are able to work with this affordance than not. Um, I've had people with disabilities in my classes and trainings who otherwise yeah. might not have been able to get on the subway and hoof it, you know, an hour and a half across town to get to something or, and it just, it's made me realize, wow, that, that really is working with other people's realities more. It's yes, handing people's situations. They've got kids at home. They've got elderly parents or, you know, all kinds of different situations that I think we can have greater compassion with as a result of this. So, and I, I have, you know, I have seen this part of the disruption this year too, uh, at least in my university, I've seen greater com- compassion and care develop, uh, greater mm. empathy develop for people's personal lives, right? 
I moved from LA to New York in 2010. <laughs> and mm-hmm. overall, the it depends which sector you're in, but New York can be very hierarchical. You have the, you know, it, it, and and I've, it can be very impersonal at times mm-hmm. too. And I've noticed those walls slowly collapsing to where it's like students' mental health uh, you know, mental health is important. There are situations. Oh, are there, oh my gosh, there's a student in New York. There's a little space. So we have a student who is sitting in the bathroom running their class and they got their camera off because their brothers and sisters are all running around in the living room. And uh, just uh, empathy, I think has been central to this past year. And I hope that disruption is permanent. Yeah. My therapist was talking, I was talking to my therapist about this and and she was saying that I was, I was asking if it, there was a sort of less client interaction. He goes, actually, no, there's more that, you know, people who might be afraid of entering the physical space um, are, are less resistant in this space where they can be at home in the comfort of their home. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I think that's what we're seeing with our improv classes, too, is we're getting a lot of people who would never have, have signed up for the full program. But they'll they'll do, you know, we, we're getting like like. 500 drop-ins a week so really oh yeah these are so we have the regular programs still going which are like maybe 80 percent of where they were live which is still pretty good but then we've built up this all these hobbyists who do what we call escapes they're just yeah three three weeks 90 minutes and then they'll come again and so you're improvising with someone who's in new zealand and then someone who's in japan and i mean come on this is great how rich is that how rich is that and i i I have a I have a class at Baruch. It's a global communication class, and I told my students this semester. I said this class this year on Zoom was better than it was in person in New York because most of the students are in different countries, and you know, reporting to you live from South Africa or Belgium yeah, yeah. or China. Uh, wow, tell us about what's going on there and in your scenes. You know, it, it has really made this a rich experience this past year. I'm starting to see, I've even seen posts by improvisers going, can we still keep this part of Zoom shows and things like, you know, mm-hmm. we love this aspect. So it's, it's easier getting audience suggestions in the chat box than, yeah. you know, going out and begging on the stage. For, for sure. Uh, so one of, one of the things I loved about this book, and when I was reading it, I kept shouting out to my wife, Anne, like, hey, check this out, is you're, you're bringing to life a lot of uh, thinkers, a lot of academic work that I had just never heard of. It wasn't on my radar. And one of those was this communications professor, Quentin Schultz. Yeah. And uh, he says, quote, I repeatedly observed a lack of ability to empathize with an inability to switch codes. He says empathy and code switching go together. I, fascinating to me. I like dig into this for us. Cause I like, I, I think for people, they, they, they would not make that connection and they might not even know what code switching is. Sure. Yeah. So it, they can be defined in various ways, but I think basically empathy as he's defining it. There is the ability to step into other shoes, to see the yeah. world from their perspectives. Um, I would go further with the word standpoints, by the way, standpoint theory is this whole uh, came, came out, came out of um, feminist literatures and such where uh, standpoints get that it's not just stepping into other shoes, but thinking about material realities and constraints and the stories at play and just, you know, pay salary, things like you're thinking about a lot more than just I'm in their shoes, looking at the world through their perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, It's all getting at the same thing, which is just the ability to go beyond yourself. Right. And to go outside of your own framework, your own mind. And as much as possible, as impossible as it is in many ways to go to think about the world from, from others points of view. So code switching is the ability to adapt. Right. So, you know, I think about, 
if anybody's ever been a waiter or a waitress, you're, you're code switching constantly, right? You're going up to it. There's a family of five and they're boisterous and they're laughing and hi, everybody. How's it going? Great. Welcome to Applebee's, wherever it is, you know, and you're, you're yourself kind of reflecting off that tone. That's a certain code uh, versus maybe there's an elderly couple who are very quiet in the corner and leaning down, uh, getting on their level and talking in a little bit of a quieter voice, that's, that could, that's switching as well, right? It's, it's playing multiple roles and viewpoints that best fit the situation at hand that can most adapt to the people who are there. And I, I'll tell you, originally improv comedy, one of the things that most attracted me to it was just the ability to not play yourself, right? Yeah. It was like, uh, you get to see the world through others' eyes and opinions. And I, I think it was Gordon Phillips who said um, acting acting helps us live out our unlived lives. Mm-hmm. And when I read that, I was like, that's why people will spend a career <laughs> going, at, yeah. you know, audition after audition is because it's a thrill to just step outside of your perspective. But it's also important for human relationships more than anything. So empathy, switching codes, switching language uh, practices a bit, right? Um I, I can't tell you, you you've, you've probably done something like this, Kelly, but the number of speech trainings I do where mm-hmm. I will tell an executive director of a nonprofit to imagine the audience as 10-year-olds yeah. right, is a common thing, you know, and all of a sudden they slow down, right. there's a little bit more silence, they're really trying to get their words uh, across and make them count. That's code switching too, right? Versus just being in your default settings and not making any adaptations whatsoever. Uh, my favorite code switching story uh, was um, Second City created a show called Between Barack and a Hard Place. And <laughs> this was uh, when he became the candidate for the first the uh, first run. So he, he, he wasn't in the White House. Um, and Michelle came and saw the show. Uh, and then I, I got to like hold hands with her. <laughs> That's a whole other story that was just like, oh, my God, it was so amazing. But but uh, uh, she wanted to bring him back to see the show. So we did this uh, sort of special performance for him. And I greeted him uh, before we went to the backstage area. And he was just very, so this is the producing team. Um, and he's like, thank you so much. I am, I am so grateful to have this, this opportunity. and really looking forward to the very, very professional. The minute he got to meet the actors, he's like, you guys, like he just switched into knowing that <laughs> this was going to be a playful experience and yeah. I have an idea what I'm going to walk in. I'm walking in the room differently. I'm like, oh, this is why he's an effective politician. Yeah, right. He adapted to the moment. It's yeah. like the Key and Peele sketch as well with Luther. Oh, yeah. yeah. The translator. <laughs> pure, yeah. pure code switching right there. Yeah. Uh, uh, God, there's so much more I could be talking to you about. Uh, okay, let, let's let's do a few more things and then I'm going to ask you for a yes and story. Um uh, when we started the work at the University of Chicago, um, uh, the professors were, because we talk in improv a lot about it's a better way to read the room, which, yeah. which I think, of course, there's an element of truth to that. But he, you have to be wary because, you know, we're, we're all not really reading the room. The, the literature is pretty clear on that. We're probably getting a lot more wrong than we get right. And I think what improvisation is, is basically doing is trying to make uh, the percentage a little bit better. Yeah, it's a batting average, right? It's I like I like that approach. It's not all or nothing, but that that's that's all of this. That's life itself. It's a batting average. How can we improve our ability to pivot on the fly, uh, manage the unexpected? So yeah, I I, I would agree with that. And may, maybe it's not just reading the room, but it's 
it's reading more of the subtext. Yeah. That, that is often not on many students and participants radar. I find, and just that idea of, you know, what John, what Johnston would describe as status is connected to nonverbal behaviors. How are people sitting? How are people feeling? Are you adapting to that? Is everybody got their arms crossed? Are they mad? Or are you just up there giving your presentation and not thinking about that sub that subtextual terrain, which is way more important than the textual stuff happening. Yeah, and the choice architecture that's that's at play. When, when we were we were doing one of our, um, uh, I mean, this is Richard Thaler who greenlit our program at the University mm. of Chicago loved this stuff because he's like, oh, you can you can act out my theory. So like, we started <laughs> one workshop where we had. Uh, a bowl of candy right by the entrance when people came in, the bowl of candy next to where the teacher uh, sat. And no one took the candy from where the teacher sat, but they all took it from where they, they were. Oh, my gosh. In. Like, why? It, everyone explore why. And it's like, yeah, there was no rule made. You made an assumption and you're yeah. doing that all the time. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you mentioned earlier theater, that's where the metaphor of the stage comes in so useful, I think, is mm. I find in communication teaching communication, especially the idea that space matters and how people feel. Um, it was at Adam, I can't remember his name, but had that whole book drunk tank pink, where they painted the holding cells and police departments completely yeah. pink and found it was the one thing that calmed people down <laughs> was just not what was said, not the script, but just how does this environment feel? How does this scene change how I'm thinking and acting? So I love that behavioral economics, one Oh one through improv. Yeah, for sure. So, so when we're, the book is called Improv for Democracy. So the, the, the cornerstones of a democracy, uh, let's see, trust, right? Yeah. Um, people working together. Yep. Um, a sense of resilience through hard times. This is, this is all what improv teaches you. It's the pedagogy of improvisation. So, I mean, I, I, I it, it, Again, when I first saw the title for your book and I reached out to you, I, di- I didn't know what it was about or what your take would be. Um, and I was so pleased because it is, it's not soft. It's the opposite of soft. And you pre- you're presenting very specific evidence drawing from a variety of fields. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, um, I, I, think, I think you make your argument well. And I, I, I think it, it, I don't know, I, I, it had, I've never seen it framed the way you're framing it. And, and that is why I'm really hoping, hoping this becomes an opportunity to kickstart other people in, in using this work uh, to take the small steps that we have to take because the, the big steps are, are just not available to us. I, I think that's right. And I, I had a, a friend recently describe this as, you know, applied improv, we've seen it in business, in science, in healthcare, medical fields, having tremendous success and training people to adapt while all those competencies we've talked about so far, but in our social and political worlds where devolve and destroy is currently the modus operandi, right? Um, We need evolve and build. Right. And I, I think that I, I, I also start the book just talking about one of my favorite authors, Barnett Pierce, who says our medical and scientific advances are, increasing at this astronomical pace. It's just amazing, right? I I have a son with type 1 diabetes and type 1 diabetes in 2021 versus 2011 is like a separate planet in terms of the advances that have been made. Like we're so grateful, um, still hard to deal with, but um, you know, that's an analogy. I'm using that as analogy as Pierce does for 
ha- have we made the same progress in our social worlds with our relationships with uh, human communication as a subject as well? Have we been on that same track that medical mm-hmm. and scientific research has been on? I'd say we've plateaued or, you know, in the current We're situation, as far as I can see, like we're going down, right? Yeah. I want to see, I want to see democracy building, relationship building, conversations. I, I want to see that on a parallel track to medical and scientific research. And I think that improvisation is absolutely one of the ways toward that goal. And um, I have to tell people, when I started writing this book in 2016, I, you know, when you're writing a book, you're going, you, you've written a book, what am I doing? You know, ah, does exactly. this make sense? You know, and you get going and you're, uh, yes and yes and really does help with writing i just i just kept going <laughs> yeah. you know didn't know like what am i doing um and i felt like ah this is not the book that i should be writing necessarily for my career and stuff but i have to write this right now i just felt so impelled to write this message of improv can really improve our world in significant ways in larger ways than i think we've imagined it's interesting. I just interviewed Michael Slaby, um, who worked on the Obama campaign. He's a technologist um, and he has a very thick uh, treatise on on how to fix things. Um, and I'm just thinking now that in many ways, one of the reasons improvisation is uniquely suited at this point in, in the conversation we're having is it is sort of the scourge of social media. So mm. where social media is really dragging us down because the yeah. economics of it are built on the worst aspects of human behavior. Yep. When you're in a room improvising or even on a Zoom improvising with other people, uh, the rules are, are the opposite of that. It is, it is no, 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 we, we're not going for the worst. We're going for the best. Speaking of choice architecture, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I, I love that. Why don't, why don't we all just make that comparison from here on out? No, I just, I really right just now in and I was like, the, yeah, it's the foil. It's the foil for this is the opposite of that. Yeah. I'm writing this down I, for myself. <laughs> we'll, this will I, be our I couldn't agree time. more. I, I have to tell you, to Kelly, too. We, um, Mary and Rich and I were running a workshop on this recently with a group, and we, uh, we were watching James Corden, who yes. had, it was, I think, Hugh Jackman and I can't remember the other actor on there, but um, oh, John Cena, the wrestler. Mm-hmm. And uh, they brought up this, they played a little game with each other called reverse trash talking. Mm-hmm. I guess this is something John Cena does where, in a, in a very angry tone, he will trash talk someone else, but only say the nicest things possible about somebody else. That's funny. And we had our participants in the workshop do this. We adapted a little bit and they were just bawling with laughter. And, and as one participant said, I have so much cognitive dissonance right now. Like, how could mm-hmm. I have this angry tone and be saying such nice things about somebody else? And we said, that's really at the center of what we're trying to do here is just to say, Let's do anything else, folks, because what we've been doing as human beings in our social and political spaces is not working, right? And there's a lot of agreement about that, by the way, I I find across partisan lines. Yep, completely. All right. The way we end the podcast is we ask our guest for a yes and story. As I said before we started taping, this feels like a total layup, but let's go for it. Do you have a story? There's so many. I'll just, one one that's timely is uh, we, yeah, my family and I, I have three kids. um, We decided to yes and the pandemic. Okay. Um, and in that way, you know, we had been stuck in our home in New Jersey for six months and kids zooming school and everything. And uh, we just had this moment, my, my partner and I, where we thought, you know, let, let's do something different this fall. Let's mix things up. What can we yes and in this situation? So we decided um, it, what might have seemed like not the right time to do this. 
uh, to get in the cars, pack up and take a cross country trip and visit every national park we could. We're like, well, mm. we need to be socially distanced, but nature is great, right? Nature is yeah. awesome. So uh, when are we going to get a chance to do something like this again? So I ran Zoom school, Zoom school for my job. My kids were on Zoom, you know, doing their school this whole time. And we went to Tennessee. We went to Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. We went to uh, New Mexico. What a beautiful state. New Me- I fell in love with New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Carlsberg Caverns underground with bats all around. I mean, we just went on an adventure. And I, it's a, it's a situation where we could have, we needed to retract back in various ways, social distance, masking, all that stuff. But we found a way to work with the situation and create something fun, I think, for our family that hopefully will be memorable and ended up in the Southwest uh, for quite some time. And uh, just just try to say yes to an adventure possibility versus no to this situation where the, the no's were already amplified yeah. to begin with. I love it. That's a great story. The book is called Improv for Democracy. Um, Don Weissenham, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Kelly. Pleasure. Getting the SN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumblebear, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
survive.